0: The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Wait with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm on staff here at Restoration, and I feel so validated that Casey said that you guys are a tougher crowd than the 9 o'clock. I always feel it in my heart of hearts, but to have somebody else say it out loud. uh, (laughs) I'm glad you're here. Uh, (laughs) I want to start off by acknowledging that if you are new to Christianity or you are just here and you're investigating Christianity in the Bible, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And I want to acknowledge that what we just read was really weird and probably didn't make a whole lot of sense. I also acknowledge that if you are a Christian here this morning and you've been in church a lot of your life, you know, Jesus, you know, the Bible, what we just read was pretty weird and it might not have made much sense still. Uh, We're we're so far removed culturally from what was going on in the early church that unless we understand what that early church actually looked like, we're not going to realize how important and crucial this passage is. As different, like you think about those churches, when you think of a local church, what pops into your mind? Maybe it's restoration. Uh, Maybe you grew up in a predominantly African-American church or Hispanic church. Maybe you've had experiences in a little more charismatic church. And those are all very different from each other. But as different as those can be, it pales in comparison to how different this early church was, like these two groups coming together. I know you don't believe me, but it wasn't even close. Uh, What we see in our passage this morning is two different people groups, vastly different people groups, who have barely interacted with each other, like ever, in the history of humanity. Uh, and yet men and women from both groups start following Jesus. And this group over here tells this group over here that they have to become more like them to truly follow Jesus, to be saved. Jewish men and women for centuries had been act, had, had God interacting with their people, making covenants with them, giving them scripture. They are the majority culture in this church, this Jewish men and women. Um, for centuries, they looked at things like circumcision and the Passover meal, as these signs and seals of God's faithfulness and his love for his people. Centuries of tradition, the sacrificial system, being separate and distinct from the rest of the world. And yet, when the risen Lord Jesus sends his people out to go tell people the good news, that the kingdom of God is here, and King Jesus is going to make all things new and restore all things, and anyone who follows Jesus is welcome and has a place in this kingdom, Almost immediately, non-Jewish people hear the gospel, and they start flooding into the church. They knew nothing about God. It's completely new, and yet God does a work in their hearts. When they hear the gospel, it changes them, and they start following Jesus. Last week, Steve preached on Acts 11, where God gives Peter this vision, basically saying that, Hey, Peter, it's not just the Jewish people who are going to be part of my kingdom and my family. It's everyone. This is going out to all peoples. Um, and it's going to be for the Gentiles, too. That's, we're going to read that word a lot. Gentile just refers to anyone who is not Jewish. And John Stott, he's one of the commentators we've been reading as we've been going through the sermon series. Uh, this is what he says about this really fast expansion of Jewish folk or non-Jewish folks coming into the church throughout the Roman Empire. He says, The Gentile mission was gathering momentum. The trickle of Gentile conversions was fast becoming a torrent. In other words, as the gospel is shared, the good news is that by faith in Jesus, you are brought into his family and you are given a seat at his table. Gentile men and women hear this and they start flooding into the church. And it's beautiful and it's good. Uh, but as we're going to see, it comes with some difficulties. All right, now, what I want to pitch at you this morning is very simple. True freedom, gospel freedom, the truth of Jesus will always set you free. Right? Knowing the truth, and it'll set you free. Uh, and as Paul says in Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So what is freedom? What is true freedom? Uh, let me pray, and then we'll look at it and see what it says. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it's true, and that you give it to us because you love us. We thank you for not covering over the, the ugly spots of church history, the disagreements and the fights, We thank you that you don't shy away from the bad things that have happened because it brought good. And Lord, we thank you that you bring good out of so many bad things. Uh, We ask that we would be able to see you clearly and see ourselves clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at the early Christian church. It's made up predominantly of Jewish men and women. The men were circumcised. They all ate the Jewish diet. They followed the Jewish ceremonial laws. That was the majority culture. And of the early church in those days. Um, fast forward a few years, right? It's Jewish men and women following the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Fast forward a few years, Paul and Barnabas are going around preaching the gospel to Gentiles in big cities like Antioch. And Antioch is like the New York City of the Roman Empire. It was like the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, and people are coming to faith. It's amazing. It's like Tim Keller back in the, you know, 70s or 80s. Uh, so, Paul and Barnabas, they stay in Antioch for a year. They raise up elders and deacons. They plant a church. And then they move on when they feel good about that. And they go around the rest of the the Roman Empire preaching, teaching. And a couple years later, they come back to Antioch. And they are so pumped because there's this healthy, thriving Gentile church that they find. And there's people they love there. That's a lot of background. But that's where we come in in our passage this morning. So look back at verse 1. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I love that, no small dissension and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And if, if the birth of the church can happen at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was sent to dwell with believers and those who follow Jesus, I think it's safe to say that this is kind of the, the birth of the Presbyterian church, right? Man, you guys don't laugh like the nine, nine o'clock service. It's a joke. Uh, <laughs> there's a debate about doctrine that gets heated, even though they're all on the same side. So they decide to appoint a committee to go up and debate some more at the first ever General Assembly of Roman Empire. There we go. I say that jokingly, even though you don't think it's funny, but this is a crucial part in the history of the church. Uh, the social, social, cultural makeup of the church, it's rapidly changing, and how the leaders and the elders and the pastors deal with this issue is going to permanently affect the trajectory of the church. Look back, at starting in verse 3. Paul and Barnabas and some other folks, they've been sent to Jerusalem to debate it. And it says, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the debate isn't just that the men need to be circumcised, as Jewish men had been for centuries, but it's also that men and women who start following Jesus have to keep all of the law of God. All the ceremonial laws, the clean laws that we see in Leviticus, eat this, don't eat this, don't touch this, wear this, don't wear this. If you do touch this, you've got to wash really particularly before you are acceptable to go worship God again in the temple. Uh, And it makes sense for the early Jewish Christians to follow those laws because they've always followed them. God gave them those laws to set them apart from everyone else. It makes sense. But the Gentile Christians in Antioch, they weren't keeping any of those ceremonial laws Partly because they didn't grow up with them, but more importantly, Paul and Barnabas and Peter never told them to. They never said, hey, you got to believe in Jesus and do all these things. They just said, believe in Jesus. Because at the heart of the gospel, and that word gospel just means good news, at the heart of this gospel is a proclamation that it's not that you have to do something to get right with God, but it's this good news that Jesus has already done the work for you to be right with God. It's good news, right? Right? salvation, forgiveness, being in a right relationship with God, then it's not something you achieve by keeping the law, but it's something you receive because Jesus has kept the law on your behalf perfectly. So the purity laws, the ceremonial laws, uh, the sacrifices and circumcision, it's a tremendous weight to bear, isn't it? There's so many things going on that you have to be right. It was this constant reminder that men and women on their own are not right with God. On our own, we stand condemned unclean were insufficient before god so can you imagine the freedom these jewish christians felt after a lifetime of trying to follow all these laws and then they hear and believe the truth of the gospel that in jesus christ they've been brought near to god that by the blood of jesus they've been killing animals for years sprinkling blood everywhere but by the blood of jesus they have finally been made clean permanently washed white as snow That's why Peter's so fired up, right? And he's talking with other Christians in Jerusalem. This is verse 8. He says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, as the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Because Peter knows that if you want to be right with God by your keeping of the law, you have to keep all of it. Even if you somehow keep 99% of the law, you've still broken it and are therefore guilty before God. Which, to use Peter's language, it's a heavy yoke, isn't it? A yoke being that big wooden hoop you put over an animal's neck and you attach it to the plow so you can work a field. He's saying this: the law is an unbearable yoke around your neck and your struggle to have a right relationship with God. Right? As you strive to live a good life and have a clean conscience, the law is always there, weighing you down, showing you God's perfection and our imperfection. That's what the law does, partly. But do you remember what Jesus said? It's in Matthew chapter 11. It's one of my favorite things that Jesus said. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you, what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and gentle. And lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what is true freedom? Freedom is finding rest in the finished work of Jesus. Freedom is accepting that you will never be good enough or smart enough or hardworking enough or kind enough or patient enough or strong enough to live a life that is pleasing to God. And yet your soul can rest because Jesus loves you to the sh- point of shedding his own blood for you and experiencing death. Separation from the Father so that you can be brought near to him. If you are in Christ, death has no hold over you because Jesus has died for you. Amen? I, in verse 11, Peter ends by saying this, and this is the main point of the whole passage. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. In other words, if you are saved by the grace of Jesus, if you are made right with God, you're brought into God's family by this perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, why would you think that you could add anything to that? Why would you think that you bring anything to the table? What is grace? We throw that word around a lot in the church. It's really important for us to know what it means. Uh, I don't know who came up with it. I think it's been around for a long time. But I heard one person say that grace, kind of like an acronym, right? All the letters stand for something. So it's God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, which is great. Grace is getting something we don't deserve at the expense of someone else. Uh, And I recently saw a really good example of this when my family and I sat down and watched the 90s cartoon Mulan. So good. I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. Uh, But, you know, Christianity, it's the true story of the universe. And so it makes sense that the really good stories would kind of echo and have some truths to it. Um, Even those that aren't written by Christians, those are opposed to Christianity. And over the years, it's just the habit of being a pastor. You get really good at seeing the gospel in books and movies and stories, even if it's a stretch sometimes. Uh, But Mulan is easy. It's just like the story of Jesus wrapped up in a Chinese parable. Uh, It starts out with the Huns invading China. And so the Chinese emperor sends out an edict that one man from every family has to go fight the Huns, right? They get down to business to defeat the Huns. Fair warning, the soundtrack will get stuck in your head for weeks if you watch it. But apparently Mulan's dad, hes a, he was a famous soldier in the Chinese army, uh, but he got hurt. And so he can he can barely walk without a limp. He's permanently damaged his leg. But because he doesn't have sons, he has to go fight. One man from every army has to go. Um, and so he takes the edict from the guy, it's his little scroll says, you know, this guy from this family, he's gonna go fight. And he prepares to go to war. And it's this heartbreaking scene where later that night, Mulan's kind of watching through the crack in the door and she sees her dad kind of open up the closet and he's got his his full armor there, his body armor. And she, he takes the sword off of the, the wall and he starts doing these really cool motions with a sword to prepare to go to battle. And it starts off okay and then he just falls to the ground because he's in such pain. Uh, he can't even hold a sword and can't walk. Um, and she knows that, and her dad knows that, as soon as he steps foot on that battlefield, he is toast. He is marching off to his death. And so what does Mulan do? She breaks into the room in the middle of the night. She opens up the closet. She puts on her father's armor so she looks like him. She takes the sword off of the wall and she takes a conscription letter and she rides off in the middle of the night. And then when she shows up at the army camp, she hands the general the, the scroll and he says, I, I'm the man from this family fighting. And they take her. Um... And so that whatever Mulan does, uh, it's as if her father were doing that. Right, she does the work. He gets the credit. And, of course, Mulan saves the day, and the emperor honors her whole family and her father in front of everyone. Uh, but that's a, that's a depiction of grace because Mulan gave her father the approval of the emperor at her own expense. Uh, You and I are saved by the grace of Jesus, because although you and I are required to keep God's law and obey him perfectly and love others perfectly, we fail again and again and again. We aren't able to do what needs to be done. So Jesus, God the Son, breaks into our world. He puts on our armor, in a sense. He clothes himself with our sinful identity. And on the cross, Jesus does battle with and vanquishes the enemy. Paul says in Galatians 3, 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So the death of death was accomplished in the death of Jesus. And three days later, when Jesus rose again from the dead, not only was the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled on your behalf, but by faith you are now clothed in this perfect righteousness of Jesus. In other words, because Jesus was clothed with your failures and your shame and your sin, You are able to be clothed with his perfection and his obedience and his sonship. By faith in Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of God. Do you know how free you are in Christ? And if you don't consider yourself a Christian this morning, do you know the freedom that is offered to you in Christ? If your status with God as a child, lovingly and joyfully adopted into the family of God, was determined 2,000 years ago when the risen Lord Jesus walked out of a tomb then you are free. You are free from the guilt and shame of your past, and you're free from fear that at some point in the future, you're just going to blow it to the point where he's just going to say, no more, we're done. Jesus frees you from the guilt and shame of your past and the fear that you're not good enough to hold on to it. Christian, you are saved by grace, not by what you do. Back to our passage, we just looked at the personal freedom that's given to us in Christ. What about the, the freedom that we as a body of believers get to enjoy, the kind of corporate freedom? Uh, at this meeting in Jerusalem, which the historians call the Jerusalem Council, it was decided that although the Gentile Christians had to obey the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, right that's everybody is holds to that law. Um, they did not have to obey the ceremonial law, like the laws in Leviticus about washing and eating certain foods and not touching certain things. They're free from that. And so the council writes a letter. And We actually have the letter. Uh, we didn't read it, but it, it happens right after our passage, starting in verse 23. Uh, and I want to read it. And I love how it starts. You know, the ancient world, the letters, they, they're not like we write them like, dear John, blah, blah, blah. You start off by saying who you are and then who you're addressing it to. So in Paul's letters, he'll say, Paul, an apostle of Christ, to the church in Corinth. Something like that. But let me read the letter. It says, "...the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers and sisters, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no such instructions... farewell. There's a lot in there, but I want to focus for a minute on that one line where it says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. How do they know what the Holy Spirit thought? Did they kind of just close their eyes and wait for a voice from the heavens to come down? No, they did what the church has always done when issues come up. They prayed and then they looked together at God's word. Right? If you've been tracking with us through the book of Acts, all the sermons that the apostles are preaching, they're just Old Testament quotes that they explain about what's happening in light of Jesus. It's always going back to scripture. Uh, And they did that not just because it made sense to the Jews, but because they are under the authority of God's word. We're under the authority of God's word here. It's one of the reasons I, I love that we have new members join today. It's one of the reasons why being a part of a local church is so important do you notice in our, in our passage that all the fighting and all the arguing happened when it was just a small group of men who went out on their own to try to tell some people that they needed to do something, even though they felt like they were doing the right thing? And even when it was just a little bit bigger group, it was Peter, Paul, and Barnabas and those, it says there was no small dissension and debate with those guys. The problem isn't solved until they gather in a community of believers, they pray about what's going on, and then they look and see what God's word has to say about the issue. And it's only then, in verse 22, it says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. We see that. It's only when the church functions as a community that they come to agree on the issue and they can say, because of what they see in Scripture, yeah, this seems good to the Holy Spirit. This is what God has been guiding us and leading us towards. It's why we have group Bible studies throughout the week. We have city groups and we have corporate worship, right? It's why a group of us sits down every Monday morning and we talk about the passage for the next week that we're going to preach on because I need Ben's insight and Marnie's and Sammy's and Skylar's. It's a beautiful time where we just kind of make sure nobody forgets anything or misses something. Can you do it all by yourself? Technically, sure, right? But you shouldn't trust that you're always going to get it right. Always being by yourself. We need each other. God gave us the church so that your strengths can cover your weaknesses and so your life experiences can kind of help somebody else explain what is going on in their life. Can we just read the Bible by ourselves, believe in Jesus, and be saved? Sure. But why would you be content with crumbs when you're invited to the feast that God has? Uh, And this ties in with what the letter actually tells the Gentile Christians not to do. The letter essentially says, okay, look, you don't have to be circumcised and follow the purity ceremonial laws that the Jewish people have always done in order to be saved. But please, for the sake of your Jewish brothers and sisters, avoid food that's been sacrificed to idols and food that's been strangled and from blood. It says out of love for your Jewish brothers and sisters, avoid those things. It talks about sexual immorality, but Jesus also talks about sexual morality. Like the Bible has a very clear sexual ethic that just holds true um and that's still in effect. But the heart of the letter was brothers and sisters, welcome to the family. You're saved by grace through faith just like we are. You don't technically have to do this for the sake of, but for the sake of keeping peace in the family and not burdening anybody's conscience. Please keep away from these things. In other words, you are made right with God through the work of Jesus. That's that's the essential belief of Christianity. And yet you and I are to use that freedom we have in Christ to not, to not be a burden for somebody else following Jesus, right? to not be a stumbling block to someone else coming to Christ. True freedom, then, doesn't mean a lack of rules. Right? Christian freedom means that you are able to strive to love and obey God and love others, knowing that because you've already been set free from the consequences of sin, you can give up anything for the sake of the gospel. Right? You can lose anything for Jesus because in him you have been given everything. We haven't really talked much about circumcision because it's circumcision and none of us want to talk about it. It's kind of bizarre and gross, but for centuries, it's what it's what set God's people apart from the rest of the world. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with his people. Uh, and we talked about this last week during communion, but when two parties are going to enter into a covenant relationship, they say, I'm going to do this, you're going to do this, and it's going to be a relationship. When they would enter into a covenant, they would enact the curse for breaking that covenant. So they take an animal, they cut it in half, lay it on the ground, and then they walk through the pieces. They say, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, let me be like this animal, cut off. And the same is true of circumcision. Right, when God comes to his people, he says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. And the curse for breaking that covenant is to be cut off. All right? Separated from God and his goodness, it's death. It's what the Bible calls hell. It's being eternally separated from God and his goodness. So circumcision is incredibly important to God's people. But let me read from you from the letter of Colossians. This is Colossians 2, Paul's writing to a predominantly Gentile church. He says, "...in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God." who also raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And he ends, he says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he was wearing your record of debt that stood against you. He was wearing your guilty identity so that by faith in him, you can put on his spotless record. On the cross, Jesus was cut off so that you could be brought near. Amen. And Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this good news. Uh, We try to make it so complicated sometimes, but it is simple in its message. That we can't do what we need to do. Uh, But you love us so much, you send Jesus to do what needs to be done. We thank you for bringing your enemies into your family. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that makes us clean. Uh, Would you let that be the driving force of everything we do and say and think? Help us to use our freedom well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for bringing your enemies into your family. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that makes us clean. Uh, Would you let that be the driving force of everything we do and say and think? Help us to use our freedom well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.